This morning on this Resurrection Sunday, I'm going to be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 22 through 28. And then I'm going to make reference a few pages to the left on the account of the empty tomb in John chapter 20. We know that David, a thousand years before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, would write prophecy concerning the cross. We saw that on Good Friday at our noon service as we were reading from Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, David, it, we, we recognize David as a mighty warrior, a, a great king, the greatest king Israel ever had. We also know that David was one that was the sweet psalmist of Israel. But we don't always think about how David was a prophet. And he would write messianic psalms, and he's writing prophecy about Jesus, what he would experience on the cross, uh, the excruciating pain, they pierced my hands and my feet, my heart melts like wax, um, the things that were going on around the cross as that he was being mocked and they are casting uh, lots for his clothing. Uh, really an amazing psalm that we read there. And we also know that David would write about the resurrection of Jesus. And he would do that in Psalm 16. And we know that here that as it is Peter that is addressing the multitude on Acts chapter 2, it's the birth of the church, it's, it's 40 days after Passover that he is there at Pentecost. And as the multitudes gathered there, he begins to explain to them what's going on. And he would address them in verse 22, the multitude, that men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now, sometimes in, in progressive churches or more liberal churches, or sometimes the thought is that, well, Jesus fell into unfortunate circumstances and was delivered over to Rome and kind of like it wasn't supposed to happen. Well, we know that he's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, that as here Peter would say, that it is being delivered by the determined purpose and full knowledge of God. In other words, Psalm 22 even proves that it was ordained that Jesus would go and die on the cross for us in that messianic psalm. But he goes on and he says that you have taken him by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosened the death, pains of death, because it was not possible that he shall be held by it. For David says concerning him, so he begins to quote from Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, speaking specifically of the resurrection of Jesus. And you have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence." We're all familiar with the account of the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. We also read in all four Gospels about the crucifixion of Jesus. And in John chapter 19, we're told right before Jesus would breathe his last that he would cry out from the cross, 
it is finished. In other words, I made atonement for the sins of humanity. I've done the work and I paid the price. Matthew would record at that time that the veil in the temple would rent in two. And as the veil was rent, that was very significant because the Lord was declaring that you can now come into my presence as the author of Hebrews would through his book that he would say that that the sacrifices of bulls and goats and the sheep was not enough. It was a kofar to cover sin until the Lamb of God came and died for his sins once and for all. And in chapter 10, he kind of finalizes everything by saying this, that now we can come into the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies, that veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, where the priest would go in behind that veil, the high priest, only once a year to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. And he made atonement for the nation, and he had to do it year after year because it was not enough you know, to, to take away sin. It only covered it until the Lamb of God came and took away sin once and for all. You see that phrase in the book of Hebrews. Well, as the veil rent in two, the Lord was declaring open house, that now you can come into my presence, as Hebrew 10 says, with confidence, not our own confidence, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a glorious truth that we have, that we can go into the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Father, into the Holy of Holies and sit at his feet, not just once a year, but any time that we want. We can do it as many times as we want, and we can stay as long as we want. So come into my presence. Paul writes in the, to the Corinthians, Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, who knew no sin became sin for you and I that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And after Jesus breathed his last, we know that a very prominent person in Israel, Joseph of Arimathea, would go to Pilate, the governor of Judea, to ask for the body of Jesus. John tells us that he was a secret disciple. Luke tells us that he was a council member. He was a member of the Sanhedrin that the night before Jesus' crucifixion, that they condemned Jesus to death. He did not consent to that decision, but we do know that the council, that they beat Jesus at that time, and then the next morning they would hand him over to the Roman authorities, to Pilate. We also know that concerning Joseph, Mark tells us that he took courage to ask for the body of Jesus. And it was Nicodemus that we know from John's gospel that would help Joseph in preparing you know, Jesus' body for burial. Nicodemus, also a council member. We know from chapter 3 of the book of John that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And it was... Nicodemus had said, we know that you're from God because no one could do the things that you do unless God is with him. And it was Jesus that said to Nicodemus, called the master teacher of Israel at that time, that Nicodemus, if one is going to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is struggling with all of that. He's going, what does that mean? You must be born again. Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Jesus said, ah, oh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you that you must be born again. And Nicodemus, the one who had 
just dedicated his life to teaching of the law and the ceremonies and the, and the feast and the sacrifices and all that is hearing that he must be born again. And then the second must of the chapter is that just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up as he made reference to Numbers chapter 22. Now the Bible does not specifically say if Joseph or Nicodemus were eyewitnesses of the crucifixion, they certainly would be eyewitnesses as Dr. Luke in his account says that all darkness covered the whole earth for three hours. They would experience the earthquake that would happen, but I suspect that they were there. And I wonder what's going through Nicodemus' mind as he sees Jesus lifted up there on that cross, thinking what Jesus had said to him a couple years before that. Jesus later on would say, that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And here they risk their position, their, their reputation, their status in the nation. They said, we don't care. We're going to ask to take care of the body of Jesus. And so John chapter 20, as we look at the account of the empty tomb, we read in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. As we put the gospel accounts of the resurrection together, we know that on the first day of the week, that is on Sunday, when it was early, Mark says, when it was the break of dawn, that not only Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, but Luke's gospel says certain other women, such as Mary, the mother of James, Joanna. And the reason that they came was to complete the process of applying the burial spices on the body of Jesus. Now, we know that Joseph and Nicodemus, when they were preparing Jesus' body for burial, that they had to hurry. They had to get him into the tomb before a sunset, the Sabbath. And Jesus placed in that tomb, again, owned by Joseph of Arimathea. The Gospels tell us that it was near Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the, the skull where Jesus died. And there was a garden. It was in a garden as well. The tomb had never been used, which is important because there was no other bodies that were in that tomb. And we also know that from Matthew's account that when these women were coming to the tomb on the first day of the week, that they're wondering who's going to roll away the stone from the tomb, that stone that sealed the entrance of the tomb. We know that they were eyewitnesses of Joseph and Nicodemus putting Jesus into the tomb and rolling that stone and closing the tomb with that stone. Also, Matthew tells us that the religious leaders went to Pilate and they said, listen, we want you to set a guard. They didn't want to use the temple guards. We want you to provide Roman soldiers a watch, which would any, be anywhere, I've read, from four to 12 soldiers watching that tomb 24-7, and it was sealed as well, as Pilate said to the religious leaders, you have your guard, seal it, make it as secure as you know how. And they would put that Roman seal on that stone, two leather X's with the Roman seal in the middle of it. And if anyone dare come along and try to steal away the body of Jesus, and that's what the religious leaders were afraid of, they would have to sneak by the guards, which they wouldn't get by the guards. You know, these are Roman soldiers. And if they broke the seal and rolled away the stone, they would be in big trouble. So they're wondering who's going to roll away that stone. They don't know the Roman soldiers are there. 
They don't know that it's sealed. I think that perhaps if they would have known, they wouldn't have come to the tomb. They're wondering who's going to roll away this, this uh, stone from the tomb. And when they get there, the soldiers are gone. Again, Matthew tells us that there had been an earthquake and an angel came and rolled a stone away and sat on top of it. And the countenance of the angel was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And when the Roman soldiers saw that, they became like dead men. Here are the, the world's greatest fighting men. They became dead men full of fear and they fled. And I just wonder, because there's not a lot of people out very early in the morning as the women are coming to the tomb, if they actually had those Roman soldiers running by them, you know, running away because they're so full of fear. And now John, as they come to the tomb, picks it up and tells us that they came and the stone had been rolled away. Luke tells us that they found the stone rolled away from the tomb and they went in and did not find the body of Jesus. And they are perplexed, Dr. Luke writes. In other words, they're not going, oh, the body of Jesus isn't here. Of course, the resurrection. They weren't expecting that. They weren't expecting it as they came. And two angels stood by them, we were told, and said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you in a place of the dead looking for the one who is alive, is what they are saying. The one who is risen. It's like the angels were perplexed that they would be doing this. Why do you seek the living one among the dead ones? People do that today, don't they? I know that I talked to somebody a couple weeks ago, and they had a family member that had passed away, and other family members were going to seances and using channelers, you know, to try to talk to their dead relative and occultic kinds of practices, and people will do that. There are people that you and I know that are linked to us in our lives that they don't believe in the Lord, and they're looking for life. And they're looking at for in places that are dead, the world, the world's pleasures, the world's philosophies, and the world's way. Listen, we find life as we believe in him, because we believe in a risen Savior and a living Savior, the incredible price that he paid on the cross so that we can have this incredible living and real relationship and fellowship with him. Jesus came to die for our sins, provide forgiveness of sin, and also he provided for us to have relationship with the Father. Jesus, in that upper room before he went to the cross, said that, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he is the way to the Father. As we have the spirit of adoption that we can cry out, Abba, Father, Papa, as we have relationship with him. You see, people will say to you and to me that I want to see God. I want to know God. I, 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 I'm feeling close to God, but they don't want to see their sin. That we need to be forgiven. And even as we discussed last Sunday on Palm Sunday, that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem and on the back of a, the a, a donkey's colt and as he's there and the people are waving the palm branches hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord luke tells us that they were expecting the kingdom of, of god to be ushered in right away the sky to open up and angels descend and and for you know the roman soldiers to be destroyed but he didn't come to deliver them from rome he came to deliver them from a greater bondage and that is sin 
Because the greatest need of any man or any woman is to be forgiven of sin. And Jesus has provided that on the cross. And he did cry out, it is finished. But he's also brought us relationship with the Father and the hope of eternal life. So now as John continues as he records the, the first resurrection Sunday 2,000 years ago on the first day of the week, uh, of the account of the empty tomb. They came, Mary Magdalene, the focus here in John's narrative, that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And then she ran, verse 2 tells us, and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. John was younger, it is believed. Peter was believed to be the oldest. There's some reference that Peter was referred to as the giant. I just picture him as this big burly fisherman and he's lumbering along and John being younger outruns him and he comes to the tomb first as we read. He stooped down looking in and saw the linen clothes lying there but he didn't go in. He's just kind of hesitant. He's looking there and then it says Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And I picture Peter, you know, his personality. He just probably pushed John aside and, and went into the tomb and, and he goes in and he sees the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lined with the linen clothes but folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who came into the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Matthew tells us that when the women discovered that the tomb is empty, that they were told to go tell the disciples that he's risen from the grave. And we read that they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, a mixture of emotions, fear, just an awe and amazement and wonder of Jesus' body not being there, trying to process it all, and with great joy as well. They were the first missionaries with the greatest news in the history of mankind. That the tomb is empty. He's not here. And he's alive. A couple things I'd like for us to take away on this Resurrection Sunday. First of all, people need to hear the greatest news ever proclaimed in the history of the world. And that is Jesus is alive. Amen. And you and I get to go out of this place proclaiming that just as these women from that tomb did. And it was a thousand years before this that David writes that my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. And this morning we can rejoice as, and have a gladness of heart because the tomb is empty. Second of all, he would write that my flesh also will rest in hope. And what that means is to dwell securely in hope. Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he validated what he did on the cross. He cried out, it is finished. He was put into the tomb. He rose again after three days. And he proved that he's the son of God who died for your sins and my sins. And we can tell people no other religious leader did that. No other religious leader died for you. All other religious leaders, Confucius, Muhammad, uh, Buddha, whoever they are, are still in their grave. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. 
And Jesus is the one that conquers sin and death. He's the one that died for you. And he truly is the son of God. And Peter, who came to this tomb that we read about and looked in and saw the linen clothes lying there, but Jesus, of course, not being there, would present himself to Peter and to the other disciples. But we know that Peter, towards the end of his life, writing to the Christians in chapter 1 of First Peter would write that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He would speak of the resurrection of Jesus as David did in verse 27. Peter's reminding us of that, the Holy One. And because Jesus rose from the grave, those of us who believe, we have the promise that we will be risen from the grave as well because he conquered and defeated sin and death. Thirdly, what we read here, in the Psalm of David that Peter is quoting to the multitude in verse 28 of Acts chapter 2, that the way, and this is important, to have fullness of joy, that is, and pleasures evermore is to have that close, intimate fellowship with him. David had a lot of successes. He was a great king. He was a great warrior. He was a sweet psalmist. He was one that defeated his enemies. He, he was one that was wealthy. But the greatest joy that David had was having that close fellowship with God. In your presence is fullness of joy. It was David that would write in another psalm later on that the desire that I have is that I will spend all the days of my life in the house of the Lord with you, Lord. He loved having that fellowship with God, and he was one that had a heart after God. Listen, if you want to have true joy in life, it is found by having a close relationship with the Lord. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence. And David understood that. We know that Jesus, right before he went to the cross, told his disciples that abide in my love and these things I've spoken to, that your joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. John chapter 3, I, I made reference to you must be born again the first must. And then second of all, I must be lifted up the second must, uh, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. And then the third must that we read about is concerning John the Baptist. After John the Baptist baptized Jesus, the multitudes were leaving John at the river and they were going to follow Jesus. And the disciples of John were very concerned, saying, hey, everybody's leaving you. So the third must is he must increase, but I must decrease, is what John said. That's the way it's supposed to be. And he would speak about being the friend of the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. You want to have true joy in life, and I think all of us do, don't we? It's found by being in his presence. It's abiding in this love and in this word. It is found as you hear the voice of the Lord. So I want to encourage you, you keep listening to him, reading the word. Walk closely with him. Learn of him. And you will have a fullness of joy. There's a lot of messages in the church today about God wants you to be happy. And listen, I'm all for happiness. I have nothing against happiness. But happiness is dependent upon circumstances. What the Lord desires for us to have a fullness of is a fullness of joy which is much deeper and richer than happiness. In other words, even in the difficulties, 
and the disappointments and the trials that we go through and the loss and the hurt, that underneath it all we can have a joy inexpressible, that we can have a peace that passes understanding, just a confidence and assurance that the Lord is with us because he did promise he'll never leave us or forsake us. And that joy that is in our heart and underneath all of that. And then fourthly, another note that I noticed just recently and kind of took note of. Back in John chapter 20, verse 1, that when Mary came to the tomb, I noted this. She came while it was still dark. Listen, these are dark days that we are in, isn't it? I'm not going to get into it this morning, but it seems like the world's at a boiling point. We look at the things going on in our nation. We see how we're getting further away from God. We know that there's challenges in our communities and difficulties and upheaval. But maybe even you're here on this Resurrection Sunday and you're thinking that it's dark times for me. It's very difficult and challenging and it's been hard. I want you to know that she came to the tomb when it was dark. You keep coming to the empty tomb, all right? You keep coming to the empty tomb and remember that Jesus is alive and that we believe in a risen Lord and that he is going to come back and he will establish his kingdom and we will be a part of that kingdom. We have a living hope, amen, not a dead hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His promises are true for you. And listen, you can have a fullness of joy as you stay close to him and know him. Remember last week, the Greeks that came to see Jesus, and Jesus said that if you want to see me, you must see me in the light of my death and burial and resurrection. And then he went on to say that you are to lose this life and live for me, essentially, is what he said. In other words, that you live for the Lord. If you live for this world, if you live for the pleasures of this world, you're going to be empty. And you're going to be wondering. But you live for the Lord. And when we make that our own and, and really say, yes, Lord, I hear you. And I'm going to stay close to you. And even in the dark times, I'm not going to withdraw from you and go my own way. I'm going to draw close to you, to know you, to walk with you, to learn of you, and to enjoy you. You keep coming to the tomb. You keep coming to the tomb, even in the dark times, and remembering this, that Jesus is alive. He's alive, and we have a hope that is eternal in Christ, forgiven of sin, relationship with the Father, his promises are true. And it's a glorious thing that we can go out of this place rejoicing in. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this time in your word and looking at the account of the, the resurrection. And I thank you for all those who have passed through these five services this weekend. How we're reminded that the greatest news that we can proclaim to anyone that Jesus Christ loves you so much that he died for your sins and he rose again. We have forgiveness of sin, eternal life, relationship with the Father that's only found through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would leave here desiring to give that news to others. 
I'm reminded so much of what Paul said when he came to Corinth. He said, I came preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Lord, we thank you for the sending of your son to die for us on Calvary's cross. We thank you for the hope that we have through the resurrection. And I pray that we would live in that new resurrected life every single day that we have being born again by the Spirit of God. I also, if there's anyone here that you've never come to Christ, He is your salvation. He is the Savior of the world. And the greatest need that you have is to be forgiven of sin. That's why Jesus came. We're all sinners, and the wages of sin is death. And the Bible says to repent and turn to Him for salvation, to call out on Him. To call on the name of Jesus. Whoever believes on the name of Jesus and confesses with their mouth that God raised Him from the dead shall be saved. To come and to humble yourself and confess that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and the only one that can do that is the one who cried out from the cross it is finished and conquered sin and death by rising from the grave he loves you the invitation is to come and you can do that sincerely right where you are that you can pray Jesus I come and I ask you forgive me of my sins and I believe you died for me on that cross forgive me and you rose again in your life be my personal Lord and Savior And I do want to know you and walk with you and be in your presence, knowing that I can come to the Holy of Holies in your presence anytime I want because I have a relationship with the Father. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And Lord, I thank you that we can leave this place proclaiming that that life is found through Christ pray you bless everyone here as we go our way, spending time with family and friends. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Would you please stand? We have a prayer team up front. If anyone gave, made a decision,